Welcome to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast, a podcast where I, Eric Murgala, interview violinists from around the world discussing practice tips, violin news, and other violin-related content. And again, my name is Eric. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. This week's episode is a special episode because I had the privilege of being on the same stage as this violin soloist, and her name is Simone Porter, a concertizing violinist who was in the New England region, and I happened to be in the orchestra when she was performing Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto. And I had the privilege to speak with her about Mendelssohn's Violin Concerto, about her career, her life on the road, some of her hobbies outside, and we get to play a quick game of overrated versus underrated in the violin world. So definitely stay tuned for that. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. Great to have you with us. And if you're a new listener, well, we want to welcome you to the Violin Podcast community. If you're not linked to us, if you're not connected with us, please make sure to go to our website at violinpodcast.com where you can find the latest news on the latest guests and recent episodes. You can follow us on social media at Violin Podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok. But most importantly, I want to bring your attention to our YouTube channel because I don't know if you know this, but a lot of our interviews are video recorded. So I'm going to leave a link down in the podcast show notes for you to take a look at uh, a visual conversation between me and my guests, especially with Simone Porto. It was great to talk with my guests live in person or via video so definitely check out the youtube channel and if you're not subscribed please make sure to hit the subscribe button and hit the bell notifications whenever new violin podcast episodes come out here we go let's get right into the conversation with violinist simone porter simone you and i met just a little over a week ago in your performance with the great bay philharmonic with the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. And I have to say, I definitely want to touch base on that because it's still really fresh in my brain. You have such command over your instrument, but it was it was just, I'm like lost for words even thinking about it because I was in the section violin, uh, second violin section, and I remember you just walked in, played beautifully, had a couple notes and then just walked out. <laughs> it was just incredible. <laughs> Oh, well, first of all, thank you. Very kind of you. Great to play with you. I had a really, really good time on stage for that concert. You played with the Great Bay Philharmonic before, and this is, yeah, yes. And but this time you're playing the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. How do you approach Mendelssohn, and can you talk to us about your process and um, with the composer and with the concerto? Absolutely. Mendelssohn is a concerto that I think, you know, like most violists, I've had the opportunity to revisit it um, many times in my lifetime, starting from youth. Um, it was kind of my first big girl concerto, which I know I have in common with a lot of people, uh, but I played it for the first time, I think at the end of my my single digits, like when I was eight or nine. Um, I have no, looking back now, I have no idea how I did that. I don't really want to hear how I did it. I feel like Mendelssohn is one of those concertos that feels more approachable when you have the um, ignorance of youth. And then you come back to it as an adult, as a, as you know, a college student or a professional, and you realize, oh my gosh, this concerto is incredibly, incredibly uh, challenging. Um, uh, its challenges, the, the challenges in it are, uh, I think, range from just really frustrating to also like a great invitation to explore it them just for a lifetime. Um, I kind of think of it as almost a perfect concerto in just that there are no movements or lines or anything that I'm like, oh man, that should really be edited or like, okay, this movement is kind of filler or something like every single um, 
section of it is special and essential. Um, my favorite thing about the piece is really how uh, complete its narrative trajectory is. Like I feel in a lot of concertos, you get sort of little vignettes or samples, but Mendelssohn, I feel like the story that begins with the first note before the solo violin even starts playing it, there's a through line from that to the finale of the entire piece. So uh, this uh, journey from, you know, anxiety to struggle to contemplation to, you know, just the uh, ecstatic triumph of the end, uh, it feels like it's all the same story. And then the joy that is expressed in the end, it feels very, very earned because you've been in it from the very beginning with sort of, with, you know, not even a gap in between movements. For me, I find that Mendelssohn Concerto is one of those concertos where I can listen to multiple violinists perform and record it. And somehow yet it's so interesting to hear everyone's perspective on it. It's so unique because it's one of those things where you can recite Shakespeare, but everyone has a different interpretation on to be or not to be, for instance, right? And I, I found that mm -hmm. to be the case when when the entire orchestra was playing, you know, under, under your guidance. And it was um, really fascinating to see how you kind of walked on stage for the rehearsal. We maybe had about an hour, hour, 15 minutes together. You just, you're so in command of what you wanted to do. Maybe there are like a couple of timing things that we were working on, but you're able to let the orchestra know and the conductor know what you wanted and still tell your story, tell your journey. I think, again, is one of those moments where a violinist like yourself can be so expressive. And Mendelssohn does that. I have a personal connection with Mendelssohn Concerto because that was a concerto where I auditioned with all my conservatories back in my undergrad. So, oh, wow. so it, uh -huh. was, um, it was nice to kind of revisit that as well. And again, the ignorance of youth definitely agree with you. I like <laughs> it's Yeah, just, absolutely. I just find that opening to be just so hard. Oh my God. It's so it's punishing, hard. but it's also so great. I mean, it's feel like when, when you get the opportunity to, you know, relax into it and play it as music and not as, you know, second and fourth position, it's amazing. It's like, I mean, it's just like, it's like the perfect opening sentence. You're immediately hooked. I would say it is the ultimate hook of a concerto. Yeah, it is the ultimate <laughs> absolutely. Hook, really? I mean, you have um, Brahms, which is, Brahms Concerto, huge orchestral opening, uh, Beethoven, huge orchestral opening, but it yeah. starts with the soloist right away. Are you an up bow person in the beginning or you're a down bow on the beads? You're up an up bow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was up bow too, yeah. but then I'm like, maybe the nerve will get to me. So I, I, I do down, up, down. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I see. I mean, I get really obsessive about that opening in particular, but any opening like whatever the first couple notes i'm going to play on stage i in the days or days or weeks preceding a concert i play that opening like 10 times a day it's like the first thing i do in the, in the morning i do it in between practice sessions anytime i'm picking up my violin for the first time after taking a break or something like the first thing i do is the opening basically to do it in as many uh uncomfortable situations as possible so that on stage um you know when you're peak nervous not really relaxed into it yet it feels just familiar automatic um or not you know automatic but like physically automatic so that you can be in it emotionally interpretively phrasing everything what's fascinating is the preparation leading up to that so how 
do you prepare for a concert and what goes on in your head while you're on stage? Because I find that to be a very interesting topic when it comes to performance anxiety and how to combat performance anxiety. And I was wondering if you have any tips for the violin podcast listeners here today. Sure. I mean, preparation uh, is so specific to whatever the performance is. So something like Mendelssohn, I have played quite a bit. So my preparation for that is very, very different than if I was, you know, doing a concerto for the first time or even something that I'm a little less familiar with. Um, So I feel like with Mendelssohn, I know mostly like to the day, to the hour where it needs to be. Um, So my preparation for that can be very formulaic, planned. Um, I feel comfortable. Uh, That's one of the few ones that I'm like, okay, if I had to, I could knock that out like really quickly. That being said, I never feel like I can really, like, I don't like, I hate being underprepared on stage. So even though I've done Mendelssohn a lot, I'm still doing a lot of slow work, a lot of building work. I'm going through every single thing, um, like practicing open strings. I'm doing a lot of mental practice, um, trying to make any piece that you've done before as good as the last time you play it never works for me. I remember um, my teacher in college and before and after college, uh, Robert Lipset always used to say like, it's like a shark. If you're not moving, you're always moving in some direction. You're never staying the same. If you think you're staying, sometimes you have to work like you're going forward to just stay in the same place. But if you're trying to stay in the play place, you're usually going backwards. So when I return to a piece, I really do try and make it better or at least different. Um, uh, and that's actually kind of how I approach, uh, performing and nerves as well. Um, For me, there are good nerves and bad nerves. Um, Good nerves focus you. Good nerves are um, really conducive to risk-taking, to discovery, um, to the type of attention that allows you to be so attuned to the moment, to your collaboration, that, you know, something blooms that could only happen in the specific moment. Those are good nerves. Bad nerves, I usually, to me, feel like, uh, a sort of protective contraction. Like whenever I'm bad nervous, I get really selfish. Basically, I get in my own head. I'm thinking about my own hand, my own playing, my own mentality, and usually being a pretty bad listener. So um, recognizing that nerves are ego and usually they draw you you know, more into yourself. That's also, for me at least, a means to get out of nerves. When I feel myself uh, closing off like that, I really try to lean into listening, try to respond to the situation around me, which is, you know, the other musicians on stage, how the hall sounds, what sort of energy I'm getting from the audience. Um, But if I don't think of a performance as something to be actively crafted in the moment, things go downhill for me. So like when I try and reproduce like, oh, this is how I sounded in rehearsal or this is how I tried it in the practice room, eh, like automatic bad. Uh, When you have imbibed all the work that you have done in preparation to the extent that you feel sort of comfortable standing standing on that without thinking about it too much. And then you are able to use that as sort of the ingredients to really like make something new on stage. Those are the best performances, you know, easier said than done, but trying to actively create something in the moment um, rather than uh, sort of retell what you know is safe. 
uh, is actually the safer option to me, if that makes any sure, sense. Yes. I mean, these are powerful, powerful tips uh, for any performer, not just violinists who are listening. A um, couple of things you did mention that I wrote down, something that stood out to me that I haven't really thought about more in depth was the, what you said was nerves as ego. And it's a very kind of inward focus while when you're performing on stage, you're not mm -hmm. trying to look inward. You're trying to project outward. Like you're um, not to sound, but ideas, musicality, um, yeah. energy, synergy, all of that. And I think what you're, what you're saying also correct me if I'm wrong, but the audience can affect your performance a lot. Like, oh, like course, the synergy, yeah. there's like this unspoken feeling in the audience that either can give you positive energy or not. And that's, well, the day mm -hmm. that we were performing, I mean, I felt the audience was just like wonderful in the music hall in the in Portsmouth. Yes. So that, that yeah, was overwhelmingly really awesome. so, yes. And also uh, the ability to kind of be conscious of, what you're thinking about in the moment, as you said, but the whole mental work in your head is really important as well. And I try to teach that to my youngsters. You know, I have a violin studio of from like starting at age five. And I have, you know, some great students who are definitely on the trajectory of like becoming a pretty, pretty great violinist. And that's something we talk about all the time, trying to get out of your head, like positive psychology, positive leadership while playing. And all of that is just super beneficial. I think that's not talked about enough. I want us to dive into the violin that you were playing on during the Mendelssohn. Can you talk mm -hmm. to us about this violin and um, how were you able to get in touch with this particular instrument? Yes. Um, so I'm very lucky. I play on a, a Carlo Bergonzi violin made in about 1745. Um, and it's on loan to me from the Masters University in uh, Santa Clarita, California. Uh, I've been playing on it ever since, uh, I think, June 2019. So it's been a few years. Of course, I didn't get to do a full season on it before um, or with it before COVID happened. So our, although we've had time to get to know each other, it was like only till later that I had really you know, played it in halls and with orchestras and sort of explored um the sonorities and projection and everything that is required really only in that context. Um, but it is, uh, I'm probably looking over here because I'm looking lovingly at my mm. instrument, but um, I, uh, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of this violin. It's taught me a lot. Um, I still feel, I feel like learning about sound is a lifelong endeavor. Um, the second that I start feeling satisfied, the second I think I start sounding worse. I mean, every, every, learning new repertoire is great just because every single piece, every single composer certainly, but even really every single piece requires a different palette, a different um, sort of uh, sound world to explore. Um, so continuing to do that with this instrument and just exploring violin sound in general is kind of one of the exciting things about, you know, continuing and learning new music. Yeah, for people who are listening on the Violin Podcast, they're familiar with Amati, Guarneri del Gesù, Stradivari Violin. For Berganzi, not too much. I mean, not that I, I you know, yeah. I don't I don't see or hear too many violinists on Berganzi violins. I mean, I, I hear Viom also, but on Berganzi, I think you're the first mm. person I've heard live with that violin. And I feel like you could still, you. it's like, you're like going, I feel like you're doing a lot with it already, but 
it feels to me or felt to me while on stage, you could go even further with that instrument. I mean, with the sound, yeah, the depth. Uh, it's, it's definitely has a lot of capacity. Yes. Um, which I hope to continue to explore. It's, I don't ever, I never feel like I'm maxing it out. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of had me think about the, the characteristics of a granary violin. And I've had, violinist on the violin podcast like Kirsten Long he plays on a Guarneri del Jesu and it felt like you're just going on a roller coaster ride with that violin on the Berganzi also so that, it was mm -hmm. it was fascinating to hear it was fascinating to hear the kinds of um kinds of colors you were able to get out of that instrument alone which is really really great uh something that I you know kind of stumbled upon on your website was uh, your reading lists from the pandemic. I feel like back then in 2020, 2021, when everybody was shut down, you know, everybody was at home practicing, trying to create community. Um, what you did was create a list of books that you were reading during the pandemic. And I want us to dive into the topic of literature and history having an effect on our own musical abilities and musicality. And I was wondering if you can chime in on that. Yeah. Um, reading is definitely my main sort of main main other hobby for sure um i rarely it has uh my bookshelf and like my music stand have sort of been in communication my whole life um but that's rarely because i think of reading in terms of like musical utility it's honestly just something like i love so much that the sort of synesthetic connections between like l literature that excites me and music that excites me kind of happened um naturally uh i used to i used to i feel like uh think about music a little more programmatically like when i was really really young and as most I, young you know, would... kids do i feel like i felt i felt like yeah, i do that too you want to like, think oh, of a you want to think of a story of you know i definitely thought of mendelssohn as a story yeah, although it's not trying to intend to be so yeah, I, I felt that yeah, way too. Yeah, exactly. And, and also, I don't want to suggest that, you know, the, the literature that you're reading is like in the, like directly corresponding to the musical, the musical stuff that you were working on. It's just, it's just interesting to kind of um, talk about that, to, to not be in our music, on our, in our music stands, but being outside of our music sure. stands. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all of those things, like thinking about music in terms of characters and thinking about music and even in terms of literary devices where I'm like, okay, this phrase is a run on sentence. How do I, fit? you know, that has been like genuinely really helpful for me. Sometimes uh, thinking about music in only musical terms, it feels so stuck that all you need is like a synonym or a comparison or something. And all of a sudden it sort of unlocks an understanding. Um, so well, now I don't think of music usually in terms of like, I'm going to transfer this character or this, you know, plot point into this concerto or whatever. Um, sometimes I'm searching for the right sound or color feels like searching for the right word. There's like the verbal precision of literature Um what that can lend uh, music and exploration is really, really interesting to me. Um, I also just read completely separate from, uh, I guess, uh, any interpretive efforts. I definitely do read to just like stay sane on the road. Honestly, in a similar vein to what I was just talking about with nerves, um, just as nerves on stage are all about ego. I feel like anxiety in general, certainly my anxiety on when I'm, you know, 
traveling or just in the general mind space of like a lot of performances coming up, um, you know, it's a reliable beat of like, I, 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 me, 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 um, getting outside yourself, um, usually with, uh, with fiction or with nonfiction, with anything, with a, a narrative or words of any sort, um, is probably one of the most like reliable mental health tools, I guess, to use a buzzword for me, but I just genuinely do find it helpful. Um, if I'm not reading something and I'm on the road, usually I'm in a bad mood and getting lonely and just like not a, not a good time. So um, and we don't want that from you. We want you to be at your best because you, we want you playing beautifully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to play well and I also want to be a nice person. So <laughs> Knowing that that is something that at least facilitates those, um, it doesn't do all the work, but um, is something that definitely keeps me in it. You know, I applaud all the violinists who have solo careers such as yourself about, you know, staying on the road and staying sane, as you say, um, staying, you know, staying focused. It's very easy to, you know, lack the focus when you're on when you're on the road. Sometimes a flight can get delayed. People don't realize it. Sometimes a visa doesn't get issued when you're traveling to a different country. Mm -hmm. um, delays, weather, and then I, I'm thinking in the top of my head, uh, Stefan Jakiv going to New Jersey in a taxi cab with all this traffic from New York City, and he had to practice in the cab. It was a famous story many years ago. I think it was on the violinchannel.com. But uh, that's, that's something that I think about all the time. Like I tell my students, you have to be ready no matter what. Sometimes you don't get the luxury of mm -hmm. uh, you don't get the luxury of warming up every single time, but you no matter what life kind of throws at you, there'll never be such a thing as like a perfect performance. Totally, yeah. There's always stuff. I feel like uh, I've become more generous watching performances, honestly, as I've gotten older because I'm like, oh, wait, there's always something going on like there is always something happening backstage I don't know if anybody walks on stage and it's like wow okay today I had perfect preparation I'm happy with everything in my life there's nothing going on personally that's like distracting. you know there's always something going on um but show must go on sometimes it can feed it sometimes it can take it away um I don't think there's any secret ingredients. A lot of what, you know, I get superstitious when I'm really, really nervous. And I'm like, okay, when this performance went well, I did this, I did, I ate this, I slept exactly like this. This is how I mental practice. <laughs> I don't think it works. Like sometimes just that, sometimes it happens. Sometimes you do everything right. And it's just feels awful up there. I, have, I, I still don't understand, but I'm going to keep trying. Sure. I find that to be the case where if I'm, performing or if I'm prepping for something, I don't want things to go too well. You know what I mean? That I get superstitious when things go almost too well, yeah. because if something goes too well, then I know that, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like a water in a cup where I'm just flowing, pouring all this water in a cup and then all of a sudden it's going to overflow. And it's, you know what I mean? So I feel like <laughs> eventually something bad will happen. So I want us to play a little game that we haven't done on the violin podcast. And I feel like you would be a great candidate for this. Uh, overrated or underrated and i'm gonna say a few words oh i just said i'm ready to be the guinea pig yes please do because i'm always looking for ways to engage with our audience and i feel like this is gonna be uh really fun so either you say overrated okay. underrated and we talk about it so the first one i have okay scales um the only thing i could possibly say is 
underrated. Even though scales get a lot of hype, they deserve more hype. I think scales are everything. I'm a huge believer in scales. Uh, another another um, option is properly rated. I, sh I guess I should say that. You know, I feel like scales can be properly rated. Okay. You know, I'm still going to say underrated because uh, I feel, you know, scales are emphasized a ton, a ton, a ton when you're in school. Um, I'm only going to say underrated because I felt myself not giving them their due diligence and due credit until pretty recently. This past fall, um, I guest taught uh, a little bit at the University of Michigan um, in the studio of Danielle Belen because she was on sabbatical. So I was there uh, for a couple weeks at a time uh, for a month total, basically working with um, uh, her really great studio. And I had never taught uh, that consistently before. And it had me sort of in this headspace where I'm like, I'm going to go back to the basics. You know, I'm going to wake up every day and do some sevgic, do some scales. And I just realized that like, I play scales every day. Um, I always have, but I realized that I was just like playing scales every day. I was not devoting the attention to playing them perfectly. You know, like what would it, how would I play them if someone was in a room? And all of a sudden, you know, I'm in the hallway practicing in my studio at University of Michigan. My students are walking by. It had me, you know, practicing with good posture exactly you know trying to be an example and I swear to god I practice scales like with you know way more attention for like two weeks and I did and I added some you know shifting exercises and also some one finger scales just to get really nitty-gritty with it and I was like oh my god I've never felt better and moving around the violin like I felt so stupid that I had just let myself start like let myself let scales become just sort of a um, a passing obligation rather than something to truly 100% devote your attention to every day. Um, so I was underrating scales. So I'm just going to project that onto the world and say scales are underrated. You heard it yourself on the Violin Podcast first, ladies and gentlemen. Scales underrated. Continue to do them. <laughs> Next word, competitions. Ooh. I guess... Probably properly rated. And I think I'm a, I'm don't feel like I'm the greatest person to talk about this having never really done a major competition. Um, the last competition I did was at Aspen music festival when I was 14. I didn't place or anything. Um, and so I've never, I never really, you know, uh, participated in like the really, really big, incredibly demanding competition. So I don't have any personal experience, um, probably properly rated in that they are an incredible tool for so many people, both in terms of career and training. Um, you know, the, uh, the positives of the exposure and demands have been very documented as well as the negatives of, you know, fairness or strain or, um, any of it, you know, they're a great tool. Uh, they're not the only tool, but I feel like there's genuinely, gen generally pretty good discourse about um, uh, who they work for, um, what they work for, and uh, how one can properly use them. You know, lots of careers have been spurred forward by competitions. It's never going to be just that. There's a lot of before and after, but yeah. I would say overrated for the sole reason that you, you would say overrated. that you just said because you may have done maybe one competition. I've done competitions maybe when I was in my youth also, but never I got like an honorable mention somewhere. But I would put it in two categories. Properly rated for the for someone who is wanting to get better 
like get to the next level in terms of their performance and their musicianship. I think that's mm -hmm. great. I think in terms of having a music career, well, where if you feel like that is the end game where, okay, I'm going to win a competition, then my life will be set. I think it's overrated in that sense. So I think if you put it, yeah. I think if you put it in two categories, I think it could um, definitely shape the trajectory on how you kind of approach the violin in that sense. So it's good. This is great. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but it's okay to disagree with me, please. I, I love to disagree with people. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I actually am really on board with everything with everything um, you're saying. They're, they're definitely not a fix-all at all. And I think you could easily argue that connections and relationships are much more important in that even if you win a competition, it is totally on you to cultivate and sustain yourself with connections and relationships. Mm -hmm. All right, next one. We talked about Mendelssohn, but I'm going to say Mendelssohn Violin Concerto. Overrated or underrated? Properly rated. It's played all the time. All the time. Um, sometimes I get asked to play Mendelssohn so much that I'm like, ugh. But it's so good. It really, really, like you said, it's, it is such a joy to perform. I love listening to it. I love hearing it live. Um, do I think that there should be more diversity in programming of violin concertos? Hell yeah. But... Um, I think Mendelssohn is beloved for good reason, honestly. I would say properly rated also. Can't go wrong with the guy. Can't go wrong with the concerto. Just can't. Mm -hmm. um, the next one, old violins, overrated <laughs> um, or underrated? As someone who performs, who is, has the great opportunity to perform on an old violin, I would say properly rated and that I wouldn't want to be playing on anything else overvalued in that they're completely inaccessible to players um but i also understand that we are preserving a moment in history and a work of art in addition to you know an instrument like a tool or whatever um new violins sound great i am a, i am a fan of modern instruments for sure I love hearing someone play, asking them what that is and like finding out that it's, you know, a modern maker. They sound fantastic. Um, I have never, I haven't had that much opportunity. I've never performed on a modern instrument or anything. And I haven't had really any opportunity to play them in like large spaces where you really find out what's going on. Um, so for me, like, I'm very, very happy to be playing on my instrument and I have never so far encountered anything that really makes the leap from small room to like giant room as well as like these like you know crusty old italians um but i'm certainly open to all other types of violins i feel like you're gonna say overrated actually i'm gonna say underrated and this oh no way i think okay. it's actually underrated and i am gonna share my two cents on the violin podcast if people care. <laughs> um, I, I think that they are actually underrated because the violin is worth nothing without the player itself, in my opinion. So mm -hmm. you cannot make beautiful art, musically speaking, if you don't have the training for it. I feel like going back to the earlier comment in the beginning where I feel like that Bergonzi violin that you're playing on still has a lot more to give. And in terms of the pricing, yeah, it's overrated, but I feel like the the overall historical world value of the instrument mm -hmm. continues to go up 
and it continues to be talked about. And no matter what, like you see a Granary selling for 14 million in, in the news, it somehow continues to grab attention because a lot of people are yeah. investing in this art. And the only way mm -hmm. it's worth that much is because of the people who continue to play on them. So that way they're still in the mix in the performance. If a, if a Strad violin is mm -hmm. not performed on, it's worth nothing. I, it, I would say, I mean, maybe Stradivari is a bad example, but because, <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying. The one last thing I do want to ask you before I let you go, and you've been so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. I just like rumbled and bambled know, thank you just, for having just me. a moment ago, but I want to ask for uh, some tips or some violent advice that you can give to our audience that will that will help them maybe with short-term gain in terms of violin technique, musicality, skills, whatever the case may be, or if you can offer some long-term like goals for people to think about. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go from micro to a uh, macro yeah. here, but okay. Short-term, the thing I was, I just talked about uh, with my sort of scales renaissance was one of the things that really changed things for me was one finger scales. Um, and I started doing those actually because I called up um, my previous teacher, Robert Lipset, and I said, my left hand's feeling kind of bad. Like, what should I do to get myself in shape again? And he was like, have you ever tried one finger scales? And I never had. Um, so I started doing them and it's literally what it sounds like, you know, going up a string on one finger, basically for one octave, doing major a major scale, a melodic minor, harmonic minor, and then all the arpeggios. Um, and the idea is you do it so slowly, like disgustingly slowly that you do not miss. Like, it's not like, it's not a, like, oh, you, you do it until you get it right. No, you literally do it so slowly. Sometimes it's like taking you 10 seconds to get in between notes. Is that all on one string? Like one, like, yes. so you're all doing it on one string. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. One string, one finger. Um, so... Uh, I started doing those uh, every day and I would do one string a day on every finger and all of a sudden like my fluency with the violin got so much better and, and now um, you know I can play them faster now I, I still do them really slow but not like you know grass is growing multiple bows to get you know move a half step um, that was something that I wanted to tell shout to the heavens just because it felt like uh, uh, very generous in terms of what it offered in the short term. Uh, second thing is practice open strings all the time. That is the one, that's something that if I've ever given, had a, if you ever had a lesson with you, I've probably made you play things on open strings. Uh, that's probably my biggest obsession. Um, I try not to think about my left hand on stage, except in very specific moments. If I think about this, um, I'm, this is where my ego is. This is where my anxiety is. This is usually where um, my, you know, this is where my brain that executes rather than my brain that expresses is. Um, so I really like to think about my right hand. That's where the phrasing is. That's where the line is, everything. Um, I practice open strings like crazy, both for passage work. Um, most of the time, if you haven't practiced that well and you ask someone, play this, you know, string crossing passage or something fast or whatever on open strings, like without your left hand, cannot do it. Um, and that's totally fine. That makes sense. Usually your right hand is following. However, I do think that it is a weakness when this hand can't act independently. So sort of bulking it so that 
um, the right hand knows what it's doing completely autonomously, um, I feel is essential. So I use open strings passage, uh, open strings work a ton in passage work, but also in uh, slow melodic lines and everything. There's, if I'm really, if I know a piece well, there is not a single measure that I haven't done on open strings. And I do that every day. That's a lot of times that's what I'm doing, honestly, backstage right before I walk out on stage, just because I want to be in this feeling. I want to feel the line as it exists here rather than as it exists here. Um, I guess third, like larger piece of advice is um, learn repertoire that's outside your comfort zone and learn from how it requires you to think. Um, again, this is speaking totally from personal experience. I feel like I learned how to mental practice um, and how to sort of reapproach the standard repertoire that you've just absorbed through osmosis and heard a bazillion times and maybe you're playing a little bit automatically because um, I started playing new music um, that either wasn't recorded or hadn't been recorded that much. Uh, learning work from like living composers, apart from just being genuinely so fulfilling and interesting and like I did it for pleasure rather than for you know uh education honestly but I learned so much from having to really look at a score and figure out what is this phrase asking from me like what is what is this note within the context of this line what is it within the context of this piece like what am I actually being asked for this are there multiple ways you know and I learned how to mental practice with pieces that I didn't understand the phrasing for. Like I mental practice now, I try to feel it like as viscerally as possible. So like I've tried to really feel the sort of tension of a line in my body rather than just reading the music. Um, I didn't know how to do that before I started doing pieces that I was unfamiliar with. And that taught me so much about how to approach something like Mendelssohn. Like I realized how many phrases within those pieces I was just, playing because I had heard them that way um and it you know it can work because usually you know we're hearing great people play but it's much less personal it's much less interesting um um it's really interesting and inspiring and like pleasurable to develop the type of relationship with a score where you have poured over every single phrase and sort of interrogated it and let it interrogate you. Um, so playing, a, I feel like the way to really learn how to do that is playing a lot of different things that challenge you in different ways. But uh, yeah, off the top of my head, those are my, my three hot takes. <laughs> All of that was so amazing and powerful. I hope you're taking notes on that. So friends, this is Simone Porter, full-time violinist. And you can hear her on tour with her schedule by going to simoneporter.com and checking out her schedule and and I believe you're on social media also, right? You're on Instagram. So what's what's the best yep. way to get in touch with you on Insta? Uh, I'm at Simone Port. Simone Port. So, and I'll yeah. leave all the links to her <laughs> social media in the podcast show notes. So definitely take a look at that. Simone, such an amazing conversation. I learned so much. I hope uh, people uh, listening also learned a lot. So really thank you for your time and thank you for uh, offering your life as a violinist. Thanks so much. My true pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. Great to talk with you and to play with you last week.